invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and uh, we're going to read the first chapter. While you're turning there, just, uh, just a reminder, <clears throat> the, uh, if the weather turns uh, uh, really, really poor this afternoon and we're forced to cancel, which we almost never do, we don't like to, but if we do, um, we'll get that information out via email and, and Facebook, I guess, is the plan. So, um, but Lord willing, we'll be able to be here all uh, safe and sound for a wonderful evening of service uh, worship tonight as we're looking at Psalm 47, Psalm 47. Let's give our attention now to God's Word, Revelation, the book of Revelation. And we're going to read the, the entire chapter. We'll be looking this morning at verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 through 8. This is God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, see, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are those seven churches. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. 
God in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us in your word, and we pray that the Spirit now will uh, open our ears to hear it and receive it, to believe it, to see the truth of Jesus and the wonder of the gospel. Uh, Father, I, I thank you so much that you give us this gift. In your word, we put our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began our study of the book of Revelation uh, by noting that this is a letter from God, hand-delivered by an angel uh, to the church. And in this letter, uh, God, in a sense, pulls back the veil that stands between eternity and time so that we can see things as they really are. And we mentioned last time that the reason this book is so full of images and symbols and numbers and animals um, is because simple uh, prose doesn't really capture the drama and the glory and the mystery, the awe of the scene uh, that is set before us, the, uh, the reality of the spiritual realm. I remember as a little guy going on class trips, and we would go to the Grand Rapids Press and Kellogg's Cereal Company, I think that was where I had my first Pop-Tart, nearly my last Pop-Tart, but the, um, it was fascinating just to see behind the scenes, you have a sense that you get to see what other people can't see, you get to see what's happening um, uh, hidden away from general public view. Well, the book of Revelation gives us just that. These are things that uh, are the common person doesn't see, is not able to see. These are things that we left to ourselves would never see. But, um, but they're, they're the real things, the reality that's taking place, in a sense, behind the scenes. And so when you read in your newspaper uh, of wars and rumors of wars and uh, cataclysmic national or natural disasters, when you read of persecutions taking place around the world, when you, when you hear of all sorts of wickedness happening in, uh, in our own country, um, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you're seeing the outward manifestation of the great underlying spiritual conflict that's taking place. Uh, Paul gives us a sense of this. He clearly saw the world this way. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, cosmic, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is where uh, the real action, in a sense, is taking place. But the great blessing of this book is not just that we get a look behind the scenes to see what's happening behind the scenes, but we get a view of Jesus. That's the blessing of Revelation. We get to see Jesus right now actively reigning, ruling on his throne. Jesus right now accomplishing all of his saving purposes. Jesus right now waging his mighty war and defeating the devil for his glory and our good. Jesus is revealing himself to, to, to us today, just as much as, as he revealed himself to his disciples when he was walking on earth. He wants us to see and to be convinced of his redemptive accomplishment on the cross. He wants us uh, to be comforted with his sovereign power engaged today on our behalf. And he wants to call us into his mission in the world today. Revelation is more like a shot in the arm than a pat on the head. It's not simply meant to comfort us that God's in control. It does do that. 
But its primary agenda is to, is to equip us for the mission that we've been given. To live in this world as the church of Jesus Christ. To shine in this world like lampstands. To shine the truth of the grace and the, uh, the holiness, the, the, the reality of God and the wonder of the gospel into the darkness of our present evil age. And uh, everything in the book, in a sense, is, is meant to show us Christ, where Christ speaks to us in order to equip us for the mission. This morning, we're going to look at the address, just these few verses, verses 4 through 8, the address, and then we'll, the greeting, and then the doxology. And so let's give our attention to God's word for us this morning. Uh, John begins, uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John, of course, is the, the apostle John. Uh, the last remaining disciple of Jesus, all the others, as best we know, have been martyred for their faith. Uh, John is in exile, been banished to the island of Patmos because of his um, witness about Jesus. Uh, so he's writing, in a sense, from the front lines of this great conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. Uh, it's addressed to the churches, the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, this is the, the uh, first time we come across one of the most significant numbers in the book of Revelation, the number seven. It's the number of completion, the number of fullness. Uh, maybe rooted in Genesis chapter 2 where God made all things in, the, in six days and rested the seventh day. It was done. It was completed. But you find this throughout the Bible, but particularly here in the book of Revelation. And so we have seven lampstands. We have uh, seven angels. We have uh, seven uh, swords and trumpets and plagues and bowls. There's, you'll find seven recurring over and over and over again in the letter. And it's all, always referring to fullness and completion. And so that tells us that this number here is, is, is most likely not meant to be taken literally, but figuratively. Uh, it's telling us that this is a letter for the entire church, the church of all ages, the church uh, all over the world. And uh, another clue to that reality is that uh, there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. Seven are listed here, but there's also a church in Hierapolis. There's a church in Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to them book of Colossians. And clearly, they're not meant to be excluded from the revelation that Jesus has for his, his church. The last four letters, it, we'll come to this in chapters 2 and 3, but the last four letters to the last four churches end with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is a message for, it's a message for us. This isn't just a message for uh, some people a long time ago. This is a message for the church of Jesus Christ here and now. This is a message for Harvest Church. Uh, Jesus is talking to us in these pages as really and truly as if he was speaking them audibly into our ear and right before our very eyes. And he wants us to hear these things. And so I, I beg you, I give that sort of attention to, to these words as we study them, as we go through them this morning. That this is Christ speaking to you. What is he saying? Well, let's note first then the greeting. Uh, the, it begins with a classic apostolic grace to you and peace. This is uh, what you'll find in almost all of uh, Paul's letters. Grace to you and peace. Uh, and it is the, it's the summary of the gospel blessing. That God gives grace, undeserved merit at the expense of Jesus Christ grace to sinners. 
And because of what Christ has done, God gives peace. He speaks peace to sinners, to those who've come uh, to him in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. But the, the greeting quickly um, becomes more than just a classic short apostolic greeting, but it, it, um, it expands to become this, this magnificent revelation of God. In the greeting, we come to another a prominent number in the book of Revelation. That's the number three. A three is the number that uh, represents God as a triune God. And there are three sets of three in this short greeting. The name of God to him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a set of three. Uh, then you have... Um, most commentators believe a reference to the triune nature of God, the, to him who is and who was, the Father, uh, seven spirits being the Holy Spirit, and then to Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then another set of three, speaking of the glory of Jesus specifically, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now there's a reason for this triplicate of threes. Uh, John is in his greeting, is doing everything he can do uh, to impress upon his readers and those who hear the omnipotent, omniscient, all-pervasive, all-encompassing, all-glorious reality of God. He just wants you to see and hear God. In, in one sense, it's the point of the entire letter to get us to see the present engaged reality of a living God in all of his glory and all of his saving might. And the reason is, you see, because it is the key to perseverance. It's the key to faithfulness and fruitfulness and joy in this life. It is essential that we have a deep, abiding cognizance of the reality of God. The first and necessary foundational conviction of Christianity is theism. There is a God, a living reality, God. Hebrews 11.6, whoever comes to God must believe that he exists. It's the first step. It's foundational. John Wooden, the famous... Um, coach of the men's basketball team of the UCLA Bruins, he used to begin uh, each new season, he'd gather the team uh, and, uh, around him, and he'd, he'd hold before them a basketball, and he, he would say to them, a gentleman, this is a basketball. And his purpose was to say, we're going to start at the beginning, we're not going to assume anything. We're going to lay down a foundation. And, and from introducing them to a basketball, he would teach them how to dribble and how to pass. See, he just set the foundation, and on that foundation, he built champions. Well, the foundation for the Christian life is the knowledge of God. God's complaint against Israel was, my people do not understand and know me. How is it possible? Can a people forget their God and yet my people have forgotten me? The ox knows its master. Donkey knows where to go get food. But my people do not know me. That was their fatal flaw. Every failure of Israel is simply the, the evidence and the fruit of that fundamental failure. 
Conversely, then, the foundation of a life that glorifies God and bears fruit to God is, is a deep awareness of God. And this greeting, it, John just means us to hear God, 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 everywhere we turn, every word that we read, it's about God. Notice how it begins, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That threefold title, of course, is rooted back in Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself to Moses. He says, Moses, I've, I've called you to go lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? And God say, tell them, I am who I am. I am that I am sent you. The verb to be, that is God's name. And here in the present and past and future tenses of that verb, you see, God reveals his sovereign uh, existence which encompasses and enfolds all of human history. There's nowhere you can look in eternity or time where God is not and where God is not ruling and reigning as God. Beale writes in his commentary, this title is used, quote, to describe God not merely as present in the beginning, middle, and end of history, but as the incomparable sovereign Lord over history, who is thus able to bring prophecy to fulfillment and to deliver his people, whether from Egypt, Babylon, or the nations. God wants us to know who he is, to remember the glory of his being, the weight of his character, his nature as God. Be still and know that I am God. That's the message, foundational message of Scripture and of this book. And then John says, and from the seven spirits before his throne, seven, again, the number of completion, reminding us that the Spirit of God is fully engaged in this world, accomplishing the will of God unfolding all the benefits of the redemptive victory of Jesus Christ, this spirit, the spirit of God has been poured out on the church. We're not alone. We're not without power, the power of God. This spirit is the one who unites us to Christ by faith and nothing can separate us from him. This is the spirit who equips us for the mission of Christ. This is the spirit who will present us without spot and great joy before the presence of God on the last day. John wants us to remember Pentecost and the reality and the fullness of the spirit of God. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that usually Trinitarian um, titles, it's usually Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, here we have that order inverted, and Jesus is the last mentioned. And I believe the point simply is because John wants us to focus on Jesus. That is, in a sense, the Spirit's work as well. The Spirit is the spotlight shining on the glory of Jesus. So let's look together again at the wonder of Jesus. He is the faithful witness. Uh, the word the, that little definite article, matters. It tells us that Jesus is not one of many witnesses. There are other faithful witnesses. John is a faithful witness. But Jesus is the 
faithful witness. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That everything we know about God in any saving way, we must know through Jesus Christ the Son. We can learn from creation that God is mighty and powerful, but if, but if we really want to know God as he is, we must see him through the lens of Christ. He's the faithful witness. He's faithful in two ways. He's faithful, first of all, in that every syllable that Jesus spoke was perfectly true. I just want you to stop and think about the astonishing nature of that. Uh, we, we speak, right, hundreds and thousands of words a day. And uh, in the courts around the world, people will bear witness to things that they've seen. Studies have shown that, that eyewitness uh, evidence can be incredibly unreliable. People with the best of intent will, will say things that are simply not true. Jesus never said a single thing that was less than 100% completely, perfectly true and perfectly appropriate at that very moment. Sometimes we say true things, and it's just not the right moment. It's called putting your foot in your mouth. Can you imagine Jesus never apologized for anything he said? There was no reason to apologize. There was not a better word that could have been spoken at the moment. No wonder the people say, never spake a man like this man. Right? No one ever spoken like this. We've never heard anyone talk like this. He was faithful. But the, the context in, in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that faithfulness is, is linked with suffering. That faithful means he did not shrink back from witnessing truly to the, the reality of God and, and, and the redemptive purposes of God in the face of suffering and in the face of death. That Jesus was faithful all the way to the grave. And one of the reasons John writes, wants us to know this right at the beginning is because in this book, the church is going to be called to do the very same thing. As the master, so must the servant be. John wants the church to understand that, that witnessing to Jesus, being faithful witnesses to Christ, is going to cost us. John, as I said, speaks from firsthand knowledge. He's seen people put to death because of Christ's sake. He's suffering for the sake of his witness. I think one of the most uh, powerful phrases in the book of Revelation is in Revelation chapter 12, where it talks about the victory of the saints over the devil. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, we read that they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's a fantastic line. They loved not their lives even unto death. Last fall, uh, jo Joanne and I had a chance to go to the 9-11 memorial in, in uh, downtown Manhattan. There were, there were pictures there of, of the firemen uh, who bravely walked up into the inferno and lost their lives. And there was a, I believe it was a video testimony there of, of, a, of a lady 
and uh, she was uh, talking about meeting a young fireman. She was on her way out of the building, and he was on his way in. She said he was probably 19 years old about that. And she begged him not to go up. Uh, he had his whole life in front of him. And she told him, there's nothing you can do to help. If you go up, you're going to die. And he said to her, I have to go. It's my job. And he turned around, and he went up, and he died. He loved not his life even unto death. And John, you see, is writing to a church that's facing an aggressive, threatening world. The emperor Domitian is putting Christians to death in the most gruesome ways. The Greco-Roman culture was a powerful force, tempting believers to compromise their faith. We're going to see that when we get to the letters. And in the face of these grave dangers, John writes to encourage them to stand, to fulfill their calling, to triumph by their testimony, to be faithful even unto death. Now, that might seem to us to be a big ask, but actually it's not really such a big ask because Christ has conquered death. He is the firstborn from the dead. You see, Christians believe the most amazing thing. We believe that Jesus, the man from Nazareth, was put to death on a cross, but that in dying, he destroyed death. He conquered death. And the evidence of that was his victorious, historically verifiable resurrection. That, um, that something has happened in this world that is the most astonishing thing. A, a way has been opened through death. And Jesus' resurrection was a resu resurrection forever. He's, he, he will never die again. And we have brought, been brought into that so that Christians need not fear death. We don't have to be afraid. It's a foe, but it's a conquered foe. The gate has been opened to the heavenly city. The door to a new heaven and a new earth has been flung open wide, and we are not merely invited to enter in. We are promised that we will enter in. We are guaranteed to enter in. Why? Because the Savior who died now reigns as sovereign Lord over all. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. See, that's why the omnipotent power of God is so beautiful and, and the, the authority of Jesus is so majestic. You see, it's majestic because of his redemptive purposes that he intends to exercise all that saving might and power as he rules over all of history to gather all of his elect and preserve all of his children, to build all of them up in the faith and to present all of them before the throne of God, not one being lost. He who began the good work will complete the good work. And so he reigns for our benefit and his glory over every ruler on earth and every demonic uh, power of hell. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the Almighty God. And throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to have the joy of seeing Jesus as the Almighty again and again 
and again. King of kings, Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. It's a magnificent vision. And then we have the doxology. One of the most precious doxologies in all of Scripture. It's a response of praise to this God, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's just close by taking and relishing the, the, the comfort and the truth of these words. To him who loves us. Isn't that a wonderful way to describe Jesus? To him who loves us. That's what Paul says. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me. To him who loves us. You see, this this is necessary if we're going to take comfort from the, the sovereign authority and reign of Jesus. You see, in verse 8, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the ending. He's the Almighty. It's, it's, it's impressive. It's overwhelming. It's wonderful. But it's wonderful only if and only because he loves us. It is not wonderful for his enemies. We're going to see in the book of Revelation the despair of those who meet this glorious Jesus but are not loved by this Jesus. And, you see, the, the power of God by itself is not that comforting. Let me, let me say it this way. When we're afraid of something, and we get afraid, it's not really the power of God that we're wrestling with. I've, I've never met a, a trembling a child of God, a, a, a struggling believer, who was struggling to believe that God had the ability to help. I've I've never heard someone say, I just don't think that God is able to do this. I don't think it's what you say, do you? When you're laying awake in bed at night, do you you wrestle with, Lord, I just, I don't think, I mean, this is a really big problem, and I don't think you're capable. I don't think anybody wrestles with that. The challenge is to believe that he's willing to help. We see our sin, our real sin. We sense his holiness. We sense that that there's multiplied reasons why God could be justly unwilling to help at all. Why would he want to help a poor, stubborn sinner like me? And the, you see, the answer is right here. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. To him who loves us, present tense. Not just loved us back when or in the future, right now, right at this moment, and God wants you to know this. The, the, the story of redemption, friends, really is a story of the love of God for sinners in Jesus Christ. And the essential experience of the Christian is an experience of being loved. The essential experience of a Christian is not simply the experience of being forgiven, but it is being loved. This is how we know the love that God has for us. He gave his son. It's an amazing thing to be loved. It's a very humbling thing. 
You know how I know that my wife loves me? When I walk into the house, most days, most days, uh, when I walk into the house after a long day at work, she looks up and smiles the most cheerful, gracious, kind smile. And it means that she's happy to see me. And it's completely for me. And it's a wonderful gift that I don't deserve. So why does she do it? She does it because she loves me. Can you imagine Jesus smiling at you because he loves you? Can you imagine his heart being full of cheerful, gracious delight in you? Can you you imagine Jesus anticipating spending eternity with you? And I don't mean that in any sentimental, cheesy way. I mean that in the deepest, holiest reverence that I know. The night he was going to the cross, as he was praying to the Father, you know what he said? He said, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So that they may see the glory that you've given to me for your joy, for your eternal blessedness. To him who loves us. God is telling you that he set his affections on you. That's why he gave you to Jesus. And Jesus loved you and loves you and gave his life for you. That reality, that that knowledge is the essential experiential knowledge of a Christian. And he's freed us from our sins by his blood. He didn't just simply set his affections on us. He set us free. And if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. This is past tense. It's an accomplished action. You're not halfway free. You're not hoping to be free. If you've come to Jesus Christ and confessed your sin, then God wants you to know the Son has set you free. And once again, I'm just struck over and over by this single gospel note that we find played throughout the Bible. What did God do for us in Jesus? What did Jesus accomplish for us on the cross? You'd be surprised how often and easily that gets lost and it gets missed and muddied. The health and wealth teacher will, t- will say that Jesus on the cross defeated the forces of evil so that you can now have access by faith to the material riches that God promises you. You can have freedom from pain and sickness. Well, that's not true. That's not what Jesus was doing on the cross. The popular evangelical American teacher will say that Jesus died on the cross to show you how valuable you are to God. And Jesus now reigns in order to help you live a happy and fulfilled life. That's not true. That's not why he was on the cross. This is the gospel, the one and only gospel in all the Bible, the one and only gospel in all the world. Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood. In other words, the great tragedy of mankind is not poverty, it's not pain, it's not oppression. The great tragedy of mankind is sin, your sin, my sin, the sin with your name on it. The sin that will drag you to hell unless someone somehow is able to break you free from its bondage. You will die eternally without God in the abyss, in the darkness. Unless someone sets you free from sin. 
your sin. That's the great crisis of every man, woman, and child. We've sinned against a holy God and are justly under a sentence of condemnation and wrath and death. And we will see this in the book of Revelation. We will see the holy wrath of Almighty God against the devil and the demons and against every person who belonged to them. Verse 7, behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. It's, it's unimaginable, the misery and terror of that day. And friends, this is the terror and the tragedy that Jesus resolved on the cross. He suffered the wrath of the holiness of God on that day so that you and I could be set free from our sins by his blood. This is the great work of Jesus and this is the theme of the song of the saints. If we get to Revelation chapter 12, we're gonna, we're gonna hear this song, this new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. That's the song of the saints. By his blood, he's freed us from our sins. And he's made us a kingdom, the kingdom of God. He's made us priests to his God and Father. He has given us a new calling to live as the people of God, to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, and to serve as priests in the presence of God. What do priests do? They offer up worship. We offer up the worship of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving and confidence. We delight in the glory of God. We offer up the worship of our lives, of obedience, of our need even. We lift up the cup of salvation and we call upon the name of the Lord. And the, the, the resonating, thundering desire of our heart is that God be glorified in our life. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the, the, the refrain of every song of the saints. To him be glory. To Jesus be dominion forever, forever, forever. So be it. God glorify your name. That's the, that's the purpose of this book. To help us to see it. To help us to experience it to help us to believe it so that our life right now today in this dark, present, evil age, right now today we shine like lampstands. And right now today we, we relish in the salvation of our God as we wait for his return. Friend, I just want to close by, are you, do you know this Jesus? Are you ready for his return? Are you trusting in him and him alone? Have you cast everything else aside? Recognizing that you have no hope, no plea, but Jesus Christ. And that his blood was shed for sinners like you. If you have not done that, friend, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. Maybe you've been in church all your life, but you've never actually bowed the knee <clears throat> and given yourself to him. Do it today. Do it today. And for those of you who are walking in the Lord and maybe struggling in your faith, the circumstances are hard. Jesus knows they're hard. Jesus knows they're hard. He's called you to them. But he promises, as you keep him in view, as you trust his power, as you hang on his word, you are going to persevere and your life is going to bear a beautiful, faithful witness to him. You will glorify him. May God grant it. Amen.
Lord our God, we are, Lord, creatures made of dust. We're here today and gone tomorrow. And yet, Lord, we are creatures who have been given a name by Jesus himself that we belong to you. We're called Christians. And the most amazing thing has happened to us. We've been set free from our bondage to sin and death. And you do not deal with us as our sins deserve. You do not reward us according to our iniquities. You reward us according to the beautiful righteousness of Jesus Christ and the love that you've had for, for us from before the foundation of the world, a love that will never let us go. Oh, God, I pray that you give us eyes to see the incredible glory of Jesus and the wonderful truth of the gospel in ways that actually transform our lives. And we begin to see things as they, they truly are, and it changes what we worry about and what we pray for and what we pursue, to how we live and how we love, because more and more we're coming to see the wonder of Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Let's respond to the word this morning as surely as the dawn.
Amen? Amen. Now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.